God, we thank you that what unites us to one another is greater than anything that can be shaken, that what holds us together, Lord, is um, you, your son, holds us in this room together, holds us on this earth together with our siblings around the world, Lord, who this morning in all different languages and cultures are lifting up the name of Jesus, the name above every name, the name that breaks every chain. Jesus, we celebrate your kingdom. We celebrate your coming. We celebrate that you are here with us. We pray that we would live in such a way that our lives would be in step with your way and your kingdom and your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat, everyone. I mean, if you want, that felt very demanding at the end of a prayer. Sit down. We're starting. Hey, um, good morning, everyone. My name is Matthew, and I'm the lead pastor here at Emmanuel. And thank you for those of you who braved the wintry storm, 34 degrees and, and, and raining. Uh, it's good to have you all here with us this morning. We're going to try to um, have somewhat of a condensed service because we did have to cancel our kids' service because a number of volunteers weren't able to come at the last minute, and we're not having an 11. So we're going to try to get you back like on the roads and safe before it starts snowing in a little bit. Today is MLK Sunday, so in, in addition to it being the week that the Georgia Bulldogs won the national championship, amen, let's close in prayer. Um, in addition to it being the week that uh, Georgia won the championship and uh, it being, uh, you know, Omicron continues on and also uh, Snow Sunday, um, it's MLK Sunday. And I want to take a minute and just mention uh, what, a, what a gift it is for us as Atlantans to live in the city um, in which this man uh, established his legacy that continues to change the world. And of course, around the world tomorrow, people will be celebrating and honoring this, this man's legacy. But I think for us as Atlantans, there's a particular gift that we get to sort of receive on a day like this because we are living today uh, in the place, the fruit of his life and legacy. And often it's easy for churches like ours to kind of plant themselves in areas where they don't even understand the full history of their neighbors and neighborhood. In fact, one of the things I've been learning in the last two years is, is uh, that I don't really know the history of my city at all, and that the churches that have actually borne witness to the kingdom of God in these zip codes for the last hundred plus years that have been here for a long time, these are the churches that have really walked in and continued Dr. King's legacy that we now have inherited. So I was doing some research this week. There's a couple of churches I just want to celebrate this morning that we are inheritors of their good work that they've laid down. Thankful Missionary Baptist Church. If you've ever been to Revolution Donuts, you have been to Thankful Missionary Baptist Church. It's right next door. They were started in 1882. Their first pastor was a school teacher. And in fact, they purchased a school building for their church building and shortly after ran out of room. And their pastors and deacons actually milled the pine themselves to expand the footprint of the church that they would use as their sanctuary until it was destroyed by fire in 1970. Um, Mount Z uh, Israel Missionary Baptist Church. You guys probably know that. It's in Kirkwood, right next to Taproom and all that. It's a great big church. It's been there since 1916. In 1918, they got their first pastor during the Spanish flu epidemic, pandemic. So they're one of the churches that has lived through now two global pandemics. 
And they had a pastor who served there from 1964 until he retired in 2018. That's their last pastor. They're currently without a pastor. He was there from the beginning or the, 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 the peak of the civil rights movement all the way to a couple of years ago. And these churches have borne faithful witness to the kingdom of Jesus through the lynching era, through civil rights, through segregation, through Jim Crow. They have held on to this idea that God is a God of the just, that God uh, is, moves in the pathways of justice, and to quote Dr. King, that though the moral arc of the universe is long, it does bend towards justice. And we, as a church that is relatively new in an area, we inherit all this legacy. We, we walk on the soil that has been sown with the prayers of saints that have gone before us. And so today, uh, as we enter Dr. King's weekend, we don't want to just celebrate his life and legacy of Atlanta's native son, but we also want to celebrate what his legacy has produced in our city and to just say, may we somehow, in our own way, inherit that story and live in a life in a way worthy of it. Um, most of you who've been here for a couple years know this, but if you're new, you don't. We've been our leadership team for two years going through coaching and consultation with leaders of color in our city, helping us ask these questions. How do we as a manual or a trinity at one point, how do we become truly diverse and inclusive? Not just talk about it on Sunday, but how do we actually move in the pathways that are going to make this place look more like the kingdom of God? And hopefully in February, we're, we're excited to actually get to tell you a little bit more about a plan and what next steps are going to be like but I just want today to, to celebrate and honor Atlanta's native son, to thank God for him and to thank God for all our siblings in Jesus who have uh, already been churning up the soil and bearing faithful witness to a kingdom that is greater and truer, deeper, older, uh, and a kingdom that will not be shaken and that will reign forever. We're going to be in the book of John today, and so if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, we're in John chapter 2, and I'm going to read a story that may be familiar to some of you. And then we're going to pray, and then we'll jump in. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to them, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and he filled them up to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. And they took it to him, and when the steward tasted the water that had now become wine, and he did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn it knew... The steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, we're in the season of Epiphany. I just want to say, I love the sound of children in church. Uh, Jesus always had children around him. So when you hear kids in church, that's, uh, that's where Jesus is. He's with the kids. Um, we will always be a place in which everyone is welcome in this room. We're in Epiphany. It's a season that celebrates uh, the divine manifestation, this idea that what God, or Jesus is, is he's the manifestation of what God is like. If we want to understand what God is like, we look to Jesus. And this week, we see what John, the gospel writer, calls the first sign in which Jesus revealed his glory. And glory is the expression 
of the essence of a thing. So when we talk about the glory being revealed, we're basically saying, Jesus saying, this is what God is like. God uh, put on display. This is what the character, nature, essence, experience of God is. And so this is the first thing John says that Jesus did to show what that is like. And so as we're in this season of epiphany where we're asking these questions, what is God like? Uh, Jesus in this first miracle at the wedding in Cana says, well, this is what God is like. God is like one who goes to a wedding and provides enough wine for everyone for a week of celebration. So we're just going to look at this story and we're going to ask a couple of questions uh, about three of the components of this sign, understanding that we're not looking at a mere miracle here. We're looking at something that points beyond the miracle itself to a deeper, truer uh, truth uh, about Jesus or about God and about his kingdom. So we're going to look at the wedding and then the wine and then the hour. First, the wedding. I think we're meant to just sit with this idea that God became flesh and went to a wedding. And how amazingly uh, mundane and normal and ordinary that is, that Jesus wasn't too important, he wasn't too religious, he wasn't too grown up to go to a wedding and to have fun. And a wedding in this day was not simply like a Saturday, like from four to nine. It was a a multi-day event. It was a feast that would last for several days, usually for an entire week. So Jesus just had the space in his schedule to take an entire week and go and celebrate with the family. And not just that, Jesus went to a wedding that was in another town, so he was an out-of-town guest. He doesn't come from Cana. He has, as far as we know, no family there, but he is invited to this wedding anyway, which tells us something about what Jesus must have been like, that he was the kind of person people wanted at their parties. Like, we tend to have a pretty, like, low view of Jesus. Like, he would be the bummer. Like, you'd be looking at the guest list, and you'd be, before you, like, respond on Evite, you're like, is Jesus going? He's going. That's going to mean it'll be a little more boring than if he wasn't there. And yet, Jesus was the sort of person that people wanted at their multi-day feast. He was a he was great at partying. We know this. Jesus was great at partying. In fact, all throughout his ministry and life, he's constantly having big parties with people. People who know how to throw good parties want Jesus there. And at this wedding, there is, as is true in so many weddings, maybe ubiquitous in all weddings, there is wedding drama. If you've ever been in a wedding or you've had a wedding, you know that often behind the scenes, there is much drama going on, right? It just happens in every wedding. And Jesus is at a wedding in which there is drama. And how cool is it to know that Jesus cares even about wedding drama? That God is not too big or too important to stoop so low to care about something that seems so, in the end, insignificant. Now, anthropologists and cultural analysts let us know that the ancient Near East was, as is still true in most of the world today, what's called an honor-shame culture. There tends to be sort of like a guilt-innocence culture, which is really what the West was dominated by for much of its modern history. I think, actually, we're experiencing right now a shift where social ostracism and embarrassment are now the greatest fears of our our time rather than being wrong or or being found to be uh, uh, guilty in some way. We're not actually as worried about that as much as social ostracism and embarrassment, which is where cancel culture and, and all these things, the, the, the engine that runs social media comes from. But in the ancient Near East, there was no greater thing to be afraid of than to be uh, an embarrassment, uh, to not come through. And in a little tiny village like Cana, at a really huge event that probably was the hallmark event of the year, to run out of wine would have been deeply troubling and embarrassing, more so than you and I probably can imagine. Because to run out of the wine was to not just say that they were unprepared, but it was to lose what was considered to be the energy and life and joy of the feast. I'm going to pull this away from my face because I didn't shave this morning. Um, 
the rabbis had a saying, without wine, there is no joy. Some of us are still living in that way today. (laughs) Without wine, the rabbis said, there is no joy. And so to lose the wine was to run out of the life of the party. And it was the groom, the bridegroom's responsibility to pay for enough wine. And it was the chief steward's responsibility to guess the size of the party and to know that there would be enough there. And so both are going to be humiliated in a way that can't be undone, in a story that can't be retold, that will just live on and on. And Jesus is at a wedding, and he cares about this. So we see that the second thing we see is that there is a problem, and the problem is wine, as we've said. Jesus hears about it and goes to, uh, Mary hears about it and goes to Jesus. One of the uh, uh, commentators I read said she goes to Jesus, not because necessarily she thinks he's going to perform a miracle. There's no evidence Jesus performed miracles before this. She goes to Jesus because uh, it has been shown that he is resourceful, which is nice. Jesus was a resourceful person. So she goes to Jesus and says they've run out of wine, and Jesus responds to the need by doing what? by making uh, between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. That is between 560 and 940 bottles of wine. I did the math. If you're wondering, that is more wine than they needed. If you're wondering, what, did they need that much? No, it was a small wedding. Even though it was multiple days long, they were multiple days into it at this point. He provided far, far, far more than they could have ever needed. And maybe you grew up in a church that says, well, the wine that he made wasn't wine, it was grape juice. It wasn't grape juice. In case you're wondering, it wasn't grape juice. We know that that's not the case because it says right in the text, normally the good wine is served first and then after the, 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 all the guests are drunk, the, the Greek word is literally inebriated, then the, 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 the two buck chuck comes out, but you have brought out the good wine at the end. It's two buck chuck in the Greek. That's... So we know that what Jesus made was an incredible amount of the most delicious, headiest, sweetest, most incredible wine that's ever been made on the earth, and he made more than they could have ever wanted. Now, why did he do this? Well, Jesus, I just want to say, just in case, like people do weird stuff with the story, Jesus isn't there to, to get everyone drunk. Jesus is doing this miracle out of the Jewish tradition of how alcohol is viewed. And if you wonder how it's viewed in the Old Testament, alcohol is viewed as a gift from God for the joy of his people and simultaneously a great danger that can ruin the life, which we all know both of those things can be true. Or maybe you're not sure if you understand, if you believe in both of those, but that's, how, that's the tradition out of which Jesus would have performed a miracle like this. This is a gift for joy but not to be abused or overused. Jesus brings the joy to the feast. He brings to the party what it needs to continue on. One of the consistent Old Testament signs for joy is wine. In fact, we see that in this sign, Jesus is giving us a sign not only of his presence, that he's here to be the master of the feast, but also a sign of the feast to come. If you read through the prophets, beginning in Isaiah, all the way through the minor prophets, again and again, you hear about wine, an abundance of wine. Uh, The mountains will drip with wine, Amos says. They will plant vineyards and drink. They will plant gardens and eat. Isaiah 25, on this mountain, the Lord will swallow up death and he will prepare a feast for all peoples of rich food and well-aged wine, of wine well-refined. So Jesus comes. God, remember, we're talking about what is God like? God is one who comes and enters into the minutia of the drama of the mundane and provides in the midst of that more than is needed for full-hearted celebration 
Because rather than in the kingdom there being scarcity, there's no scarcity in God's economy. There's abundance. Rather than there being shame, there's honor. Rather than there being mediocrity, there is the best of the best. This is what the sign is telling us about Jesus, about God, about his kingdom. And it's a great story. Jesus comes to bring a feast on the earth. He comes to bring the joy of heaven here on the earth. He comes to be the thin place in which the joy of heaven now touches down. And you see throughout the whole ministry of Jesus and in the subsequent life of the church in the New Testament that that is exactly what happens. A lot of times, one of the problems people have with Jesus or with Christianity in general is this assumption that what I'm holding on to in my life is somehow giving me more joy and more life and more fun than what God is offering to me through Jesus. It's just something that most of us believe inherently, intrinsically. It's why many of us are holding on to even now habits and things that we wish we didn't or maybe we don't know what else to do with them because they seem to be holding out at least little shortcuts, like little like like ways around to get to the kind of life or joy that we're looking for that we don't believe ultimately God has for us. We just said to get today that he feeds us or he gives us drink from his river of delights, but we don't necessarily know what does that mean when the psalmist says, in your presence is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We say, yeah, 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 but what does that actually tangibly mean? And yet Jesus, he basically says sort of casually as he unloads a thousand bottles of wine from the back of his minivan, I dare you to find someone who will give you more joy. I dare, take me up on this and see if there is someone that you can find, some thing, some way that is going to fill your heart more than what the way that I offer to you. Finally, the third thing we see in this story is this little word, our, and to me, what it is, is it is the gold of the whole story. It takes everything we've talked about and it says, but this is what it is ultimately all pointing to. What is the sign? Okay, so let's, 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 let's talk about this. Jesus is sitting at a wedding. They run out of wine. His mother comes to him, says, son, they have run out of wine. He says, woman, there's no gentle way of saying that. It's kind of abrupt. Apparently, she pulled him out of a thought. Uh, I wish I could say in the Greek, it's, it's not. It's just, a, it's, a, it's brusque. I don't know. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's almost as though Mary comes to Jesus, says something to him, and he is elsewhere in his thoughts. In fact, Edmund Clowney, the Presbyterian minister from the 20th century, gave a sermon on this text in which he asked such a great question because <laughs> it just humanizes the moment so much. The question is this, what do people think about at weddings? They think about their wedding, whether they're married or not married, whether they're single and celibate or married or divorced, they think about themselves. It's just one of the things we do. Yeah, we think about the people too. Don't worry. Like we think about, but, you, but you think about yourself. You think about your own experience. You think about your longing. You think about if you're single, will I ever have an experience like this? Or if you've decided I'm giving my life to celibacy, this is not going to be part of my story. But whatever, the, whatever your particular place from which you are coming into that, you think about yourself in that moment. And Jesus is a 30-year-old or so single man sitting at a wedding. And what is he thinking about? The same thing that everyone thinks about at weddings, especially single people. 
And if it's possible that maybe Jesus was thinking about his own wedding at this, we know from the Bible that he would have been thinking very deep thoughts and having profound emotions. Because Jesus, if he is actually who the scriptures say he is, he's the embodiment of God. He's the manifestation of God. He's the epiphany of God on the earth. He's what God is like in the flesh. Then we know from reading the Old Testament that when God decides to reveal the most wild and fiery part of his heart, he does so in the context of his desire for matrimony, for holy unity and marriage to his people. More than God wants to be your king, more than he wants to be your shepherd, more than he wants to be your Lord, more than God wants to be your father, the Old Testament bears witness that God desires to be our husband. He wants to have absolute unity and oneness and fidelity. He wants uh, intimacy And if you ever want to see the heart of God just laid bare, raw and exposed, read Hosea, read Jeremiah, read Ezekiel, and see what it is going on in the heart of God when he thinks about his desire for intimacy with his people and what he instead experiences, which is, of course, idolatry and faithlessness. Jesus is thinking about all of these things. And Jesus is aware of this tradition. He's not unaware of this. In fact, Jesus calls himself throughout his ministry the bridegroom. He just takes this Old Testament vocation and puts the name tag on himself. He says, in case you're wondering, I'm the bridegroom from the Old Testament. And in the very next chapter of John, the gospel, John the Baptist's disciples will come to John the Baptist and they'll say, "We're, we're worried all of your followers are leaving you and they're following this other guy, Jesus. And John says, Of course they're leaving and following him. He's the bridegroom. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom rejoices at the sound of the bridegroom's voice because it means that the wedding is near. So all of this backstory, all of this freight is informing and filling and funding Jesus' heart in a moment where Mary comes to him and says, Son, they're out of wine. And he says, My hour has not yet come. Because in the book of John, this is the, this is the end of our deep Bible study, in the book of John, the word hour, always, you're just going to have to trust me on this, always indicates one thing, and it's Jesus' crucifixion. In John 7, and John 8, and John 11, and John 13, again and again, my hour, my hour, my hour is not yet come, my hour. And then finally in 13, it's the night, it's the night of the Last Supper, it's the night he's going to be betrayed, he says, now my hour is here. So when he says, my hour is not yet here, he says, my death is not yet here. It is not time for me to to die yet. Which means what? That Jesus understood that for him to get from where he was to the wedding that he has desired for all time to his people, that the pathway runs through suffering, that the only way for Jesus to get from where he is to the bride that he has come to claim is through a cross. And all of this is informing and giving life to Jesus' feeling in that moment as he looks at his mom and says, it's not time for me to die yet. According to the New Testament, marriage is itself just a sign of a greater reality. It's a picture of the sort of intimacy and belonging and commitment that the soul was made for with God. And that might sound sort of, um, I don't know, trite or off-putting even, But just consider for a moment what it would mean for you to finally feel union with a love greater than yourself. To finally feel united to a love that is pulsing through all creation. 
you know, this is not a unique Christian idea. This idea funds most of the mystic traditions in the world because the one thing that every human being has in common is a sense of homelessness. And even those of us who in this life experience the highest highs of intimacy and the greatest depths of being known and loved by another still know on the other side of that intimacy is still an ache. That I can be known by a person better than anyone else and still feel not fully known. That I can experience the highest highs with a person and still on the other side feel lost in some way. That it's not enough I've been pastoring for 15 years now, and I can say unequivocally, oftentimes the worst thing to happen to a person, and also the best, is that they get exactly what they wanted in life, and it isn't what they thought it would be. That the marriage doesn't fix it, and the kids don't fix it, or the divorce doesn't fix it, or the new job doesn't fix it, or the new house doesn't fix it, or the new friend group doesn't fix it. Because what we are all having in common with one another, friends, is that we feel homeless in this deep place in ourselves. We feel disunified from this thing. And the mystic traditions around the world have always been saying that is because you were made for something greater, something transcendent. And Jesus comes and he says, I am the embodiment of that. I am the full fruition of that desire. I am the end of that. And so the New Testament rightly looks at marriage and friendship and says both of these are therefore signs of that union. In fact, the New Testament holds up friendship as a higher love than the love in marriage. And this is why the church for 2,000 years now has held up with equal honor, not recently, but equal honor, both singleness and celibacy and a holy matrimony and marriage because both are a sign of the same thing. We're trying to find echoes right now of union that will eventually point us to a greater union which our souls were made for and we know it deep in our bones. And everything that we experience in this life is just a scratch. It's just a hint. It's just an echo of the thing that we ultimately were made for. Ephesians 5 tells us Paul's words to the church that husbands are supposed to love their wives like what? Like Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her that he might wash her to prepare her, to prepare her to be presented to himself. And then he goes on to say, as it is written in the scriptures, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Something you probably have heard if you've ever been to a wedding. And then Paul says, it's a great mystery what I'm talking about this marriage thing, but just to be clear, I'm actually talking about Jesus and his church. That everything that we're experiencing in this life, friends, is ultimately pointing to a greater thing. That everything that we say right now is the most important or the most pressing is actually just a shadow. That's how it says it in Colossians. It's a shadow of the substance. That these things actually are ultimately something that we see through to a greater truth on the other side. And Jesus, your bridegroom, sits in the midst of all this joy, and he's got all that on his mind. He knows all of that is coming. Edmund Clowney says, Jesus sat amid the joy, sipping the cup of sorrow, so that you and I today can sit among, in the midst of all the world's sorrows, sipping the cup of the coming joy. Jesus sat amid the joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so that you and I today can sit amid all the world's sorrows, sipping the coming joy. When we come to communion in a minute, what we're doing is we are, we are preparing for what God calls the ultimate end of all things. The Bible ends, if you turn to the very back of the Bible, it ends with a wedding and a wedding feast. God's big plan for you is union. 
And this is actually how we begin to become, or how we actually will become finally Dr. King's vision of a beloved community, friends. When we finally are finding our love most filled in God, then we begin to love one another through the lens of God's love because no longer can we hold prejudice or racism or sexism or homophobia or anything, xenophobia. We can't hold on to any of these things because we now look at people through the lens of God's love. And that actually creates the beloved community which we begin to practice for here and now. I want to close by reading um, the passage from Revelation that's part of the inspiration for that chorus. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among people. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be them, will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the former things have passed away. And the one who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Jesus, we want you to come and make all things new. Let our hearts be receptive and open. Let us find you each day this week. Lord, stir in us a hunger and a longing that cannot be met or satiated even briefly with anything other than you. We ask you that you would come to us, O oh Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.